welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. I hate the people who talk about it all the time, so I didn't want to be one of those people. From two guys who study the markets as a passion. Can I count on you to talk me off the ledge, partner? Yes, and that's what this podcast is for. And trade for all the right reasons. That's my due diligence. I'm in. Dude, if you're in, I'm in. A line of thinking is the higher the volatility on an asset, the higher the volatility on the opinions. So I feel like you have crazies on both sides. Here's your host of Animal Spirits, Michael Batnick. I can say that I was never driven by money. So you were trading three times the leverage ETFs for the love of the game. Exactly, man. <laughs> I, I'm a purist. But anyway. <laughs> and Ben Carlson. This is true. I do not drink coffee. I've never been on Facebook. I've never done fantasy football. Oh, one last thing. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Now, today's show. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Ben, what are we going to be talking about today? So last week, we had our evidence-based investing conference in New York City, and we were supposed to do a post-mortem immediately following the conference, but you were deathly ill and had to leave at lunch of the conference. Is that uh, correct? Uh, such a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. I felt so bad for you. You were in really rough shape. I woke up on Monday morning, and I was like, fuck! <laughs> like, what a big week for us. And it just got progressively worse and worse and worse. I think it started with a virus. It ended with a black eye. In between, I had a fever and a bacterial infection. And at this point, I might be dead by next Tuesday. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I felt pretty. I can't believe you actually even made it for half of the conference. It looked like someone punched you in the face. Yeah. So it turns out that I broke a really thin bone in my eye from vomiting the morning <laughs> of the conference. Seriously? Seriously. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's bizarre. Yeah, it was yeah, just brutal. So now, like, I'm I'm walking around in the New York City subways with sunglasses on. You're that guy, and everyone's kind of like, oh, he's kind of shifty looking. Yeah. Okay. So we wanted to talk about the conference. It was a, it was loaded with people, speakers, friends, and I took a bunch of notes. Usually, I just go to conferences and mingle and socialize, but actually, this time I was sitting in the front row the whole time. You're not much of a socializer. No. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm a non-social drinker. Would it really, wouldn't really, de- wouldn't really describe you as a mingler. Uh, I'm not one who will have elevator talk. That's for sure. I, yeah. I hate small talk. This is true. So you were there for half of the day, so you can we can fill each other in and riff off each other that way, and then I'm going to fill you in on the second half of the day, which you missed. Okay. So the first guy talking was Scott Galloway, which we've talked about in the past, but I'm just really jealous of how good that guy is at public speaking. He's he was pretty good. It was, it was he he was he spoke like Obama. There was not a single hesitation or pause or arm. He was funny. He was articulate. He was perfect. And it's a reminder for us who are doing this speaking thing for the first time, really in our lives. Like holy shit, this is a skill that we do not yet possess. And that guy has obviously crafted the shit out of his skill. I'm sure he's been a professor for probably a, a decade and a half at this point. And wow, that was a real treat to see. Yeah, he was good. And the information was good too. I mean, people were talking about that one all day, I thought. A lot of it has been covered that we've talked about in the past. I thought the craziest stat he gave was the fact that Amazon can borrow for more cheaply than China can. 
I'd never heard that one before. So the 10-year yield on Amazon's bonds is 3.2%, and in China, it's 3.6%. Yeah, no, what? That didn't really surprise me. Okay. I mean, we're talking about like the second largest economy in the world. I guess maybe Amazon is that great of a force of nature. So yeah, he was amazing. He was funny. He, yeah, he, he was really good. He had he had a few jokes. I don't remember. Do you remember one of them where he's like, so I'm definitely not going to say. Yes. Well, he said, yeah, he, he finished it with it. He said that when, he, when I came into NYU, they told me not to swear and they told me not to do a couple of other things. And then he dropped a huge F-bomb and walked off the stage. Uh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. I thought the second one of the day was with... Miles Udland from Yahoo Finance and Lizanne Saunders was on the panel, who is I think is really great from Charles Schwab. Yeah, she's terrific. And the and you were there for that one still. The one interesting factoid she gave that I had never heard before. She said there's now more wealth controlled in the country by women than men. And I guess yeah, that, that, was- that threshold got crossed this year. I had never heard that before. And it makes sense because women live longer than men and so, you know, by sheer attrition, women are gaining all the assets. <laughs> She also said that there's she has a lot of anecdotes about women women being better investors, and obviously Schwab has access to all of that information. I would love to see the breakdown of individual investors' accounts between men and women, and I would bet that women are like not just a little ahead, but like far ahead. There's there's some studies that have been done. Actually, one of them was in the Kahneman book, the Thinking Fast and Slow, where they that was an older one that they showed women are better investors, and the reason is because I guess men are bigger gamblers and take more risks, and women are much less emotional and they'll more long-term in nature. And men probably tend to revenge trade. I was, <laughs> I was notorious for that. Like if you lost money on Amazon, like that, that was it. Like you, Amazon is in your crosshairs forever and ever. <laughs> I've never heard revenge trading before. That's pretty good actually. Oh, I did that. For, I did that for like two years. So it's not really anchoring. It's, it's revenge trading when you're, when you're holding on to something like this. Yeah. Give me my money back. Yeah. She was, she was really good. And I, uh, that was a good panel. So you know who else was good? The Ukrainian guy yes. um, from State Street. Yes, Vladimir, and I can't pronounce his last Zadorov. name. Yeah, he was very sharp. He was a good guy. He was, yeah, his his line that I thought, like, he said you have to, like, balance the false positives with false negatives when you're talking about backtesting. That was kind of an interesting way to think about it. The fact that there's so many BS backtests out there. No. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that was really good. And he was a really smart dude. And it's funny, someone someone called him the Russian gentleman and he said, no, I don't drink that much. I'm from Ukraine. That's pretty good. <laughs> I thought one of my favorite ones of the day was when Barry talked to Cliff. You were still around for this, yes? Yeah, that was so, so good. Yeah, he's good. I mean, he's, he's again, a great speaker. I've seen him give presentations before, like PowerPoints, and he has, you know, complete control of the crowd. He's good. He's funny. He's talking about stuff that is often boring to people like us, but he does it in a good way that can get people engaged and you know, keep them paying attention. Yeah, him, and he and Barry had really good chemistry. I think the the line that stood out for me was when he said that uh, something like the twelve percent of me that my wife hates is a hundred percent of who Larry David is. <laughs> yes, and Curb. My other funny one of his was he talked about he launched his firm like right at the height of the tech bubble in the late nineties in their value investing shop. So they got their strategies got crushed. And he said that his partner said that he looked like Abraham Lincoln before and after the Civil War. <laughs> that was pretty good. But he also said that his writing style changed because he said after a while, he just gave up and said, F it, I'm just going to write whatever I want and be myself. Because before then, he wrote like an academic. And so I thought that was an interesting 
writing tip there about he said just be himself and he writes jokes and pokes fun at himself and other people hey speaking of that time period where anything other than growth you look like an idiot yes so since 2009 in eight of nine years the nasdaq 100 has outperformed the s&p 500 and since 2009 the cumulative returns for the nasdaq 100 is 465 percent versus 242 percent for the s&p 500 wow where'd you pull that one out of i I just grabbed it from somewhere that's great yeah so again that means we're in a bull market for is value investing dead pieces i think everyone's written one at this point right yeah but it, again, it just shows that that gets back to this whole thing about diversification for me. Like, if you're in one strategy or one type of fund, I mean, there's no way you're going to be able to to handle that thing, you know, especially in something that t- quote unquote works. Because even as Nis said, Barry asked him, "What's your favorite factor?" and he said, "Value." Yep. And it still goes through these these bone crushing periods of relative underperformance. Yep. Yeah, he was good. So after. After Barry and Cliff, was that was that followed by Buckley or was it Emerging Markets next? I might have missed the Emerging Markets. Well, it might have been mine, actually. The Quant panel? Or was there another one after that? I don't know, but you let off with a joke that fell really flat and it was very funny to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was, well, Asnes brought up the fact that within four minutes of a meeting with anyone these days, they asked about AI and machine learning. And I saw this tweet that got retweeted like 10,000 times. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll start off with that. And it fell flat. And Patrick O'Shaughnessy was sitting next to me. He goes, good one, Ben. <laughs> Under his I breath. Feel like, I feel like that's kind of your thing, like leading off with a really bad joke. But yeah. it, wasn't a, it, was a, it was a good joke. I just think that maybe people didn't hear it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think people were still calming down. And yeah, I didn't really get into it. And I, But then they laughed when I said, well, this is a tough crowd. So yeah. I, 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 so okay, what was your takeaway from that one since I was up on the panel? And it's impossible to pay attention when you're running a panel to what the people are saying because you're just worrying about the next question. So Yeah, it's also it's also tough to pay attention when you have a black eye and a hundred two degree fever. <laughs> okay. No, I thought I thought that the panel was uh, so that was you, you were the moderator, Lee Drogan, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, Corey Hofstein, and the fourth guy, I don't know his name, but he was the guy who just launched the reverse market cap weighted ETF. Yeah, Kevin Quig, I think, if I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, they were, everyone was really sharp, but that was a good panel, I thought. Yeah, I'm not sure what like the salient points were, but it was uh, it was definitely informative. It was a good good discussion. Yeah, I think the big thing is that that I took away from it is that you know quant is going to continue to be a huge force of nature in the investing world, but you need people who aren't quants to be able to manage it and manage the people and manage the decisions of how it's going to be allocated or used correctly. That's kind of my takeaway. Yeah, managing the machines. I think my next yeah, my next big notes here that I took was the Jason Zweig one with Josh, which was great. So that was one that I was like super bummed to miss. So Jason Zweig had just had his 10-year anniversary of his book Your Money in Your Brain, which is probably By the way, we're we're just we're just skipping over the CEO of Vanguard. No big deal. Oh, yes. I didn't take notes on him. Okay. Okay. That was a good one, actually. I think it's because it was just right after mine, and I didn't take notes on him. But okay. So the CEO of Vanguard, you were still there for that one? I was. His, I thought his funniest story was when he said, I became CEO of Vanguard. I have two young kids. And his son asked him, so dad, you have almost $5 trillion in assets. And he said, yeah. And he said, what happens if you get hacked? And he's like, get out of here. <laughs> get out of the car or something. <laughs> that was pretty good. But he he was great. He was like... I mean, these guys at Vanguard that lead it, I mean, they're like politicians, right? Didn't you get oh, that yeah. feeling? 
He totally looks the part. Full head of hair, polished, like he was Vanguard. The thing, the thing that I liked is that he went after a lot of the criticisms of Vanguard too, and he backed it all up with logic. Well, in terms of like uh, indexes and ETFs interfering pri- with price discovery, yes, and we've we've heard the stat before, but indexing, even though it's thirty percent of the market, represents only five percent of all trading. Right. Yeah. The fact that who's going to do price discovery now if everyone's indexing and passive, and yeah, he 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 took all that stuff head on. He talked about corporate corporate governance and how that's such a big part of what Vanguard does. And yeah, he said, you know, being a price taker, he said he doesn't go to the grocery store and haggle over every price that he pays for bananas or something, which is what people are worried about in the investing world. And yeah, he was good. His other good joke, which which I tweeted out was Barry asked him, so what's your favorite stock? And he said all of them, which was pretty yeah. good after not skipping a beat. Yeah, he was great. And I think that Vanguard is in good hands because they better be with all the money they have, right? So Vanguard is, I think, 50% of all index assets at this point. You think in five years, that's greater or less than 50%? The Vanguard number? Yeah. So if they're at 50% today, do you think that's higher or lower in five years? Definitely higher. Huh. You don't think so? I'm not as convinced. I think it's becoming a huge barbell type of industry where you have iShares and Vanguard on one side and State and everybody Street, else. And then everybody else who's more niche because the products that they make scale and the products that a lot of other people make don't really scale as well. So they're the stuff that they get into is huge, you know, plain vanilla stuff, and they do it for the low cost and they do it better than anyone else. So why even try to compete with them in that space? Yeah, it's tough. Which is kind of crazy because if you look at the stats, I don't have them in front of me, but the majority of the money is going into plain vanilla stuff. It's not going into all the smart beta products. I think ninety percent of it is going into stuff that costs less than ten basis points. Yeah, which is kind of crazy. So, so that that lends you to think that it's it's the big money. And this is not being driven by retail investors. It's big money that are like, all right, I'm I'm taking billion dollars out of closet indexers and I'm putting it into actual indexers. Yeah, which makes sense. It's it's rational until it isn't. But yeah, and Lizanne Saunders talk about this too. Someone asked her like, well, is the shift to passive cyclical or secular? And she said, well, it's both. It's right, obviously secular, but it's cyclical that there are secular or you know cyclical flows going into this that won't stay there. Yeah, which but makes sense. I also I also think that yes. When indexes and when markets are down 40%, that's not what's going to cause people to sell. I think it's the opposite. Markets fall 40% because people are selling. Right. Um, but it, previously, I guess people would sell their active mutual funds and then whatever, when the dust settled, they would jump back in. Now, I think people will potentially sell index funds misbehave and then go back into an index fund. They're not going they're not gonna be like, oh my index fund was down thirty eight percent, but that active fund was down thirty six, so now I want to get back into that thing. Yeah, I agree. It's like an all or nothing decision. It's I'm going from stocks to bonds or stocks to cash and then back to stocks. It doesn't yeah, it doesn't mean they're they're changing around the way that they invest in stocks. I agree. Yeah. I do wonder though, if somebody is in say a seventy thirty portfolio and markets are getting crushed, would they go to something like fifty fifty? Or is it just get me out? Yeah, maybe being in an index fund allows you to behave a little bit better from that respect. Yeah. I doubt it, but maybe because you, yeah, you know exactly what you're getting. You're not being promised the holy grail of we'll sidestep it and you'll be fine. You know, you'll be fine, right? Which never happens. Okay, so back to the Zwag thing. After I skipped over the CEO of Vanguard, which was really cool. I guess it was his first public appearance that he's made since that announcement. So that that was fun. So Jason Zwag went up with Josh Brown to do a fireside chat. 
right after a technical analysis panel, which was kind of funny because Josh said, all right, now we're going to go through some charts with Jason Zweig, who is <laughs> n- notoriously not a huge chart guy. But it was a it was a great talk. So he talked about, you know, how he was kind of ahead of the curve from a behavioral perspective. And I think it's definitely probably my favorite book on the human psychology, especially from a money perspective, your money in your brain. I went over it again recently, too, and it's, it's, there's just so much good stuff in there. And Josh asked him, like, how did you get to this stuff and make it make people like Kahneman and Thaler, you know, more mainstream than than they had to be? And he talked about how it was kind of his own personal thing. And I guess he said what got him is like the mid 90s and his wife saw him reading like a journal of portfolio management or something. And she asked him, like, are you getting anything out of this? Is it really entertaining? And he said, no, I'm bored out of my effing mind. Like, maybe I should try to read something else. And that's like what got him into discovering like scientific journals and psychology magazines. And that's what got him into this idea of human behavior kind of before anyone else in the money game. Did did he talk about his own experience trading stocks? Because in the book, he, he shares a story that he was like picking stocks and stuff. He didn't get into that. He talked more. It was more about the reading stuff. He just he was bored because he felt like he had reached the ceiling of, you know, I've read all the academic stuff. There's not much more to read here it's it's more human and so he he, he once he got, got that out of it he's like oh my gosh it opened up so many different worlds for me to explore which which makes sense and the the craziest one to me was i didn't really i knew he had helped kahneman write thinking fast and slow he was basically like an editor and a guy to bounce ideas off of but he said he quit his job for two years to work on that with him which is yeah. crazy and so someone asked him you know what's what's your biggest takeaway from that? You know, what's the, what's the biggest bias? And there was a few questions throughout the day of this, like what's the biggest, the single biggest mistake investors make, which it's impossible to narrow that down. So, so I said, you know, the biggest mistake is not understanding your own bias. So everyone has their own blind spot or whatever it is. And so the biggest bias for everyone is not understanding what it is in yourself. I wonder if he thinks, if he thinks that is not fixable, but if it's something that we could guard against. Yeah. Well, he said that he thinks the way that we study behavioral finance is wrong, that people try to use it as a weapon in the way that he described it as people are trying to look at the stupidity of others through a window instead of a mirror. And so we're, uh, lo- we're looking at what, it, which was great. I'd never heard it like that. You know, we're, we're looking at how stupid everyone else is like all these idiots. I'm going to take advantage of them instead of the point of it is not identifying the stupidity of others. It's identifying the stupidity in yourself. Well, I hedged my wedding, so I think I've done a pretty good job looking in the mirror. <laughs> yes, nailed it. Uh, so yeah, so that was great. It was awesome. I loved the. Uh, I loved that talk. That was fun. Let's see what else. There was a good private equity panel. So our friend Morgan Housel was on it. Brent Bishore, and then this girl named Daphne, who's from a private equity firm, which the name escapes me, but she was really sharp too. And the whole idea was, how do you tie evidence to private equity investing? And, and are things getting kind of crazy because there's been so much money rushing into that space? And it sounds to me like, at least from a paying perspective, if there was a CAPE ratio for the private equity space, it would be in line with where we're at in stocks. So that makes sense. Yeah. So they were talking, and yeah, because they, they base the prices and valuations of those off the public markets. That's right. how they value these things because there's no tradable market. So they were talking about how in the past you could get things for six times EBITDA, which is just a price multiple. And now they're paying, you know, it, then it got up to seven or eight and then nine or 10. And now they're in like the 10, 11, 12 
And wow. these people are, yeah. So like the valuations even there have doubled from what they were in the past. Isn't the whole idea of the illiquidity premium such that these companies fetch a lower multiple because you can't just get out? So when multiples start drifting higher and higher and higher, I'm sure that becomes problematic at some point. Yes, that was that was one of the points that Morgan made, which is a good point because, yeah, it's like for better or worse, you're stuck with that, which is a good thing in some ways because you can't just trade in and out of it. But if you make a bunch of investments at the wrong point in the cycle, you're screwed. Right. Which is one of the reasons that these funds are always ro- rolling out new funds every two to three years because they know like the ones that were released in 2006, 2007 ended up doing horrible for the most part because that was the top of the cycle. Yeah, I wonder if their investors sort of dollar cost average across funds. Yes. Probably. Yeah, so back in my endowment days, that's what everyone did is you diversified by vintage year. So right. you, you'd have to have, instead of just going all in at once, that's the way to make a lot of money. But yeah, so you're not screwed and pick up a fund at the wrong point in the cycle. You in, you have to keep investing over and over again, like pretty much every year, pick up a couple new funds. So if public markets are in the top of the 10th, private markets... I'd say that the whatever illiquidity premium was there in the past has narrowed substantially. I'm sure it's still uh, there a little bit. So bottom of the 12th. <laughs> yes. In a 20 inning game or something. Yeah, that was a, yeah, but that was a good panel. Okay, so the other one, I guess the only other one that at the end of the day that I liked was Jim Ross from State Street, who was there when the SPY ETF was first created. Uh-huh. And Barry recently had him on the podcast, but he was really good. He showed up on stage in the dorky investment joke Josh made because he had a huge cast on his arm. And Josh said, I just want to tell everyone that Jim was injured in the fee wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, wah, wah. Uh, yeah, but that was a good one. And he he had some good stuff about you know how these ETF providers are probably getting themselves into some hot water, and he was he was kind of talking his own book. But I guess a lot of these ETF providers, if you think about someone like Vanguard, who offered the personal investor services, the, they're sort of robo. Um, he thinks. Wait, State Street has one. No, Vanguard has one, so State Street doesn't. Uh. So he was talking about the fact that a lot of these firms are doing this now. And he thinks they're going to basically piss off their biggest clients who are like advisors. Yep. So he thinks that that's going to be a huge story in the years to come. And they've so far stayed out of it. State Street has. They just want to be the product and research provider. And again, he said he was talking his own book, but he thinks that's going to be a point of contention in the years ahead as these these advisors realize, you know, we're not going to use your products if you're just going to try to take over our market. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, that was a pretty good one. Other than that, overall, I think it's this is our third conference we've had. I'd say content-wise, it was the best one we've had. I think every speaker and panel was great. It was it was pretty loaded. Like I said, I was sitting in the front row the whole time paying attention, so I got a lot out of it. Plus it's always fun to see friends and, you know, talk to people in the business from yeah. all walks of life. You know what I was most proud of for for this conference in terms of content? There was not a single smart beta labeled panel. Yes. First time this I've was seen like a, that. Like smart beta free, which was good. Yes. People are sick of hearing and talking about that stuff. We Yeah, we had a bunch of other stuff. We had a commodities panel too. We didn't mention emerging markets. There was a bunch of good stuff up there. Technical analysis. So we have to start planning the one in California soon. One thing that I think that we should uh, do to spice it up a little bit and keep it fresh is to have a panel on cryptocurrencies. Yes. Okay. So I think I should probably be on that one because I'm an expert. 
with my fractional Bitcoin share. No, uh, I think so too. I think people are really, and honestly, every single panel of the day probably got a Bitcoin question at this, at this conference. It was kind of like, oh, thanks. You guys did great. So what do you think about Bitcoin as an app? And I think that people, when they ask that question, are really asking like, should I buy here or should I wait? Like, that's what they want to know. But there's a question for every person on, you know, do you think it's an asset class? So I think there's a lot of questions in there. And yeah, it could be an interesting discussion. And, you know, the thing that I was most impressed about with this conference was the happy hour the night before. We must have had 100 or 150 people in this tiny bar by the World Trade Center Memorial. Yeah, that was cool. That was fun. And then there was a good cocktail hour afterwards and dinners, and it was fun to see everyone. So this was this was a fun event. If you've never been to one of these, I definitely recommend it, especially since the one in California is at such a sweet venue. Well, I'm glad I missed it. Um, but <laughs> Didn't mean to rub very, the salt in the wound there. Yeah, very much looking forward to California. So I spent 100 hours in bed the last week and watched a bunch of movies and some new and some that I've seen before. So just wanted to go over some of this with you and see if you've seen these movies. And if not, we'll just uh, move on. Okay. I've got a few, I've got a few recommendations and D recommendations as well. Okay. So I've been meaning to watch this for a long time, but my wife doesn't like these type of movies. And when I say these type of movies, I just mean, I guess quality films. <laughs> so I watched uh, lion. You ever see that? Yes. That's the one where the guy in India was, he lost, he got lost on the train. Oh, uh, so good. I cried like five times, probably when I wasn't even supposed to, but uh, what a great movie. Yeah. It was, and it was cool how at the end he used Google to map out where he was from. That was amazing. And it was a true story. Yeah, awesome movie. Yeah, that's always one of those where it's cooler because it's a true story, probably. Yeah. Okay, I watched Spider-Man Homecoming. I don't know if you like the comic book movies. Holy shit, it was awesome. Oh, you liked it? Okay. Cause it's like Did the, you? I haven't seen it yet. It's like the 12th Spider-Man of the last three years. It was, like, if you like the uh, Avengers or anything like that, it was totally worth watching. Okay, I'm... I, I was sold on the comic book movies. I'm kind of... They're starting to run their course for me, but I'll, I'll give this one a try if you if you say you liked it. It was really, really good. I haven't watched many of those lately because they're all in their third or fourth incarnation, but... Okay, so those so those were the two new movies I watched. And then here are some of the, some old movies that I've rewatched. Uh, I haven't seen Zoolander in probably 10 years. Yes. That, I, every time that's on, I have to stop on the movie channel. <laughs> it was so... It's still so good. <laughs> Yes, I couldn't even bring myself to watch the sequel because I heard it was terrible. So I'm just gonna—I'm yeah, pre- pretending it never happened. I'm with you. I will never watch that movie. Okay. Okay. This one I have never seen, so it was new to me. <laughs> but this is a very old movie, and you're gonna laugh. What women want? <laughs> is that? Uh, <laughs> yes, it M- is. Mel Gibson and uh, Helen Hunt. Oh, okay. It's like the—you know—they don't make '90s rom coms anymore, really, right? <laughs> it, it was a great movie. <laughs> really. Like, giving- I didn't. I didn't like scan the DVR or anything like that, or on demand. So it wait, you watched happened. it. You watched What Women Want on your own. The entire thing. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> impressive. But okay. wait, have you seen it? I I have not seen that one. All right, let's let's press pause. Go watch it. All right. You know, seriously, it was good. All right. Um. All right, relatively good. Right. I rewatched John Wick. You ever see that? Yeah, that's a pretty good action one. Not awesome. Bad. Over the top. Yeah. Totally mindless killing Keanu. Yes, revenge. Okay, I watched The Incredible Hulk with Ed Norton, which is not a great movie, but I've watched it a lot. You know, I didn't mind that one because I'm a big Ed Norton fan. I, I thought that was pretty good, but... Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's good, but I've watched it, like, six times at this point. It's not that good. Okay, true. That's fair. And then lastly, 
uh, I rewatched Bruno, and that still holds up. Oh, it was t- no? tough to watch at certain points, though, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's <laughs> the scene. The, the scene where he's like, "Wait for this exclusive interview with Harrison Ford." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. And it's Harrison Ford just being like, "Get the fuck away from me!" <laughs> yeah, there's it, it's cringeworthy, but yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, okay, so I watched. Oh wait, hold on. I'm I'm sorry. I'm almost done, but not not okay. quite. So the last two episodes of Curb were fucking incredible. Like the curbiest Curb epi- okay, episodes. Okay, I'm, I'm one behind, but last night we just watched the one where he said he told the guy that the he's at the, he got kicked out of the golf club. <laughs> that was a good right. <laughs> that, yes. It's, when he asked the waiter to describe the face the chef made, it's been getting better. I think every episode has gotten better. So I, I still have to catch up on the last. I DVR'd for a while because we were finishing up Stranger Things 2. Okay. How was it? Which, uh, it was started off good. The middle was kind of eh, and then the ending was, the last one was pretty good. It They definitely probably didn't need to make another season, but, you know, I'm sure they're making a ton of money, and it was entertaining. I would, right, I'll, uh, wait for, I'll wait for the third. I loved the first season. The second one was just entertaining. My Got it. All right. So, what are you watching? Favorite movie of the past few months is Baby Driver. Have you seen this? Uh-uh. Uh, yeah. it's. I thought it was really good. It's like a car chase bank heist kind of movie oh i know which one that which, is yeah and, but it was very unique in the way that they did it and anytime that there there's like a couple kind of movies that drag me in every time Anything, was that jamie fox jamie fox was in it john ham was in it as a bad guy don draper yeah, I, think, I think i think barry liked that movie it was really good it was very unique i'm i'm a sucker for any type of like bank heist or con man movie so mm-hmm. that one and it, the way they did it was very unique i liked it and the other one that I didn't like. This is my is D recommendation a word? Unrecommendation? Sure. Have you seen this movie Live by Night with Ben Affleck? No, but I promise I won't. Okay, not worth it. It was boring. It's it's it sounded good on paper. It was a prohibition era like gangster movie where with Ben Affleck and Sienna Miller and a few other pretty big name actors and it was just boring and not good. So don't see that one. Oh, I have one to add to the D recommendation list. Okay. So there's a movie on Netflix called 1922. It's a Stephen King novel um, that I've never heard of. The movie sucked. Do not see it. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. It's this is the what to avoid. This is my new thing. As I get older, I want to know recommendations of what not to watch more than what to watch. I tweeted that out the other day. Anyway. Okay. So I think we probably run out of time for today. Send us your emails animalspiritspod at gmail.com any questions feedback ways we can make the show better you can subtweet us on twitter and anything else from you today that's all all right thank you thank you